0: Welcome back to One Step Beyond, the Cadence Leadership and Communication podcast. I'm your host, Aram Arslanian, and today we are going to speak with our guest, Christopher Horsethief, about post-colonization and the business world. So when we talk about post-colonization, very specifically, we're referring to indigenous populations and First Nations populations and how business, in an actual meaningful way, can create a pathway of saying, hey, like, we want to work with you to creating a better future. This is a very challenging conversation for people. And the reason is there is a huge history of pain, loss, theft, very serious stuff that North American culture has perpetrated. So to be able to really meaningfully engage in this, we have to have an expert. And that's why we are so fortunate to have Christopher join us today So as we get into this conversation, I encourage everybody to listen with open ears and an open heart and figure out how we can make a difference. Here we go. All right, everybody. Welcome back. Today we are sitting with Christopher Horse Thief, and we are going to be talking about post colonization in business. Um, this is for me a really challenging topic in the best of ways. Uh, I believe in having the hard conversations. I believe in asking the questions that make you a little bit nervous, and I believe in really exposing ourselves to learning that we would otherwise not have. And we do that by talking to people who are true experts and people who are willing to guide us down that path. And that's why we're very lucky today to have Christopher. So um, Christopher, do you prefer Christopher or Chris?
1: Well, there's always a Chris. So I prefer Christopher. It keeps things a little bit, (laughs) a little bit straight.
0: Okay, man. Um, So I would love to hear about what you do today and your path to getting there.
1: Sure, well, I think first I'd start by saying, um, um what I just said was um good morning everyone uh everybody that, that's here today or or listening um my my name my traditional name is Nighthawk that was my grandfather's name. He was from the um uh Indian reserve uh, which is just uh outside of um Uh, Radium, BC. Uh, My grandmother was from um, the St. Mary's Indian Reserve, now called Akam, outside of Cranbrook, BC. I'm really happy to be here today. Um, I think it's really appropriate timing, especially for a company involved in leadership and business, particularly uh, in uh, Canada and uh, in Western Canada, to be having this conversation. Those tough conversations are are great to have around complex topics. If this was a simple topic, like how we were gonna celebrate Canada 125 or Canada 150 or something, it's pretty easy. We're gonna have fireworks and we're gonna do a picnic and we're gonna do some brochures. But when we're talking about our relationships with indigenous people um, and kind of negotiating a new reality with First Nations people Um, many of which have been in their ancestral homelands for millennia, 10, 12, 13 millennia, Um, and particularly reconciliation and Canada's process, a formal kind of apology for residential schools and the Indian child welfare mechanism, those can be really tough. And it's something that I get to, I'm very, very honored to be um, identified by my community to play a role in researching these topics and facilitating the discussions And anytime, whether it's a crown corporation, um, whether it's a a local politician, a city council or post-secondary institution, anytime someone wants to engage and talk about these, I always try and make the time to do it because I think these are the most important conversations that we can have moving forward. Moving forward in a way that everybody has a place, their voice, they feel comfortable using it, um, where they're not limited or constrained or there's not all that weird Heavy gray clouds as you <laughs> enter a conversation, where you're not exactly sure what you can say.
0: Yeah, yeah, well, and thank you so much for that. Um, so let's talk about today. What that looks like for you? So literally, like, what's what's your title? Like, what do you do, and what does that look like for day to day for you?
1: So today, I'm uh, Doctor Christopher Horse Thief. Uh, I'm a, a research professor. I have a couple of um, federal research projects with uh, Canadian Institutes of Health Research where I'm a co-primary investigator, uh, a Indigenous Services Canada research project where I'm the primary, uh, and a couple of other CHIRC um, and other social sciences projects. So for the most part, I'm a researcher, uh, but I also do get to lecture. I'm on faculty in a couple of doctoral programs where I get to work with future professors that are focusing on things like leadership and diversity um leadership and social justice, ethical and creative leadership. Uh, but it's been a long process to get here. Uh, I was originally, uh, I grew up outside of my community. I grew up in Bellingham, Washington, where I knew I was not a coastal native person. Um, I was much taller than uh, all of my relatives that, you know, from families that my, my father had married into. Um, as I got older, went through high school, Uh, went to college at Western Washington University and um, decided that I wanted a little bit more than kind of the textbook knowledge. I wanted to to move home to where my father's parents were from. So in the, I don't know, 1990s, early 90s, I moved to the St. Mary's Indian Reserve, middle of nowhere, (laughs) like drive to Spokane and then drive three or four hours north um I was completely green all I really had with me was some good music a good punk rocker moving into the middle of a very conservative forestry based research uh, resource extraction um industry and um just kind of started over wanted to learn a little bit more about some of the contemporary issues facing my community um kind of the hangover effects of colonization what happens after the residential school, how a community builds itself up. My first degree was in political economy, which is kind of the relationship between money and power and how they overlap. And over time, I added a master's in economics and then a PhD in leadership. And I started to move further away from trying to build an economy in my community to, I think, have a better understanding of the obstacles that were there for us. Why did we Tear each other down. Why was lateral violence, or one community member going after another community member, accusing people of wanting to? Are you think you're better than us? You want to do this other thing, um, and just instead of celebrating what we were doing, we were just really ugly towards one another. So um, later on, that was you know understanding conceptualizations of health, um, why people should build each other up. Uh, that's how leadership um, got involved into it. How do you lead in such a way that you provide an example? That you do the right thing that empowers people, that makes people more than just individual cogs in a machine, but actually helps them to be a part of this kind of emergent process. And so, yeah, it's been, uh, it's been really good. It's been a little bit crazy. I was not, when I first moved home, (laughs) I was not super popular. Um, he's too good to drink with us. He's too good to party with us. People my own age. Um, if, if that kind of thing you run into in high school is either punk rock or straight edge, mm-hmm. it was like that a thousand times worse in a community where alcohol had become the primary coping mechanism for everything negative that resulted from colonization. Yeah. So I moved home and people let me know and know in no certain terms that they would shoot me if they saw me, they would run me off the road. Um it was really rough the first couple of years. Um, uh, but you know, like with everything else, when you're creating a You know, a skate punk scene in Bellingham, if you are um, into punk music, playing uh, in bands, whether you're straight edge, you're trying to make that change in the world, I just kind of stuck with it and over time um, helped to create some new relationships where we weren't as threatened by things. We were open to working on new stuff. So that's kind of in a nutshell where I came from and how I got here.
0: Okay. Uh So you you brought up the thing that is, of course, what brought us together in the first place is that beyond this incredible journey that you've been on, both academically and um becoming a, a deeper part of your culture, it's also, you know, you grew up in the punk scene in Bellingham and you grew up with someone who works at uh, Cadence, which is Dave Larson, who's also one of my best friends. And uh, I know there's tons of fun stories we could talk about. Um Tell me about growing up punk and what that did for you in terms of your thinking
1: well my my mother's mother um i I never met my father's parents they passed away by the time i I kind of ever even knew they existed but my mother's mother um, was the primary influence in my life as a young person Um, she was a a a rural agricultural farm type uh, that moved from southern illinois so that's why especially in canada my, I don't, I don't have the Canadian accent. I got a little bit of a Midwestern twang in there. Um, she ended up in uh, Seattle, was kind of a Rosie the Riveter in World War II, and then ended up up in Bellingham with her husband. And growing up, there was like two or three things that she always made me promise. Um, one, don't let anyone ever tell you you can't do something if you know you can do it. She, she made me promise that over and over again. Um, don't let her, don't ever let anyone take anything from you that you know is yours. Always stand up and be proud of who you are. Um, and then right before she passed away, about the time I was finishing my PhD, kind of relevant, she made me promise her that when I was a professor and I was like a lecturing in lecture halls that I would dress like it. She's like, Oh, Chrissy, I know you like the Doc Martin's boots and you like <laughs> the skulls, but she made me promise that at some point when I was a for really real doctor in front of people, Uh, that I would wear, you know, suit and a tie and, you know, uh, and my my daughter did get to meet my grandmother before she passed away. And it's kind of fun because now my daughter, who can probably hear me because her bedroom is next door, she helps me coordinate a lot of my ties and pocket squares when I have to dress up and do that kind of stuff. But she, uh, my grandmother was really good about, you know, if you know it's right, you don't ever let anyone tell you otherwise. So when I got to the point where I started thinking critically about the relationship between Um, People and resources and, you know, I think um, non equitable distributions, you know, unequal distributions of resources. And I started thinking about that and speaking out about it. I always had my grandmother there on my shoulder just, you know, like prodding me along like, you know, it's not right. Don't let people tell you it is. Don't let people, you know, try and look at you and be ugly. And do it. if you're going to do it, do it. If you're going to shave your head, do it. If you're going to have a mohawk, do it. If you're going to wear those clothes, and you think that there's something that's right or valid or something that you know is a true part of you, then just go ahead and do it. So, you know, Bellingham at the time was um, a lot of agricultural workers. Uh, it was uh, fairly, and particularly, I grew up really close to Dave, so I was at the 505 West Baker View Mobile Estates. Um, And Dave was on Northwest Avenue. He's probably driven you out there to see where his Mm -hmm. parents live. Um, So it was probably not even a mile away. And then right on the other side of my grandmother's trailer was Bill Baker's house where the famous shows were. The shelter show, the Rage Against the Machine offering. All of those happened like right in a little line. It was like Orion's Belt of kids that knew there was more in this world that there were things to stand up for, whether it was running a skateboard shop or creating a safe music scene, or whether it was looking at these larger questions of, you know, resources and economies and, and fairness and being good to people, I kind of, for me, was all right in that kind of Northwest Bellingham area.
0: Well, and, and I love what you just said, because, and just for the context of the audience, so people who grew up in the punk scene you're going to know you're going to hear things like rage against the machine you're going to hear shelter but for anyone who's who's not from that which would be the large portion of people listening to this um our friend bill baker had at his in his garage some truly legendary shows inside out played there with force down uh, shelter played there like this was a serious and if you're from the punk scene you know you're like oh yeah of course that's what we do but if you're not from the punk scene this small town on the way that's kind of in between seattle and vancouver you know it's it's not you know it is a college town but especially at that time you know maybe it would trend a little bit more conservative these kids just made something happen dave larson who again works at cadence he just started a skate shop one day he was like i'm just going to start a skate shop with one of his friends as a teenager just a kid he started his own skate shop aggression skates And it's just young people deciding we're going to do this thing and we're going to make that thing happen. And so much of this business is like cadence is like built off of that kind of thinking. And it sounds like not only so much as your career came from that, but also that your grandmother helped set up some of that thinking anyways.
1: Oh, for sure. My grandmother and my mother both um, always had, you know, my mother was uh, very active with you know, education and politics when she was younger. So as I got older, it was never going to be okay for me just to accept what people are saying and doing. I mean, particularly for me, that formative part of my life, the, the 80s in particular, where the Reagan era, um, you know, we, we just saw what was happening. And and my mother and my grandmother, were, who were both were the, the biggest influences on my life, were you know, they were really good about saying, look at the way this is happening. This isn't right. Yeah. This is affecting the middle class a certain way, or this, this idea that we're going to put a bunch of money into the hands of people that are more knowledgeable or have hired more MBAs and somehow that's going to create money and wealth for everyone. We all know that there are personalities out there and we, and we know that for some people, maybe that does work, but other people, you put more money in their hands and it just means that they buy another yacht or something. So totally. they were both really key in getting me to always look at the bigger picture but then, you know, and it's funny because you mentioned Aggression. Um, I was the third owner at Aggression like for the what? last year. So, yeah, I was it was I and, and I have an original drawing that Bill, I have the original drawing where he has the three of us, Dave and Randy and myself. And he drew one because Bill had all this like amazing artistic talent. So I'll try and send it to you. It's kind of okay. a funny picture. But I remember in particular when it came to doing something with those feelings of knowing things weren't right. One of the very first real experiences that I had, we were all went out skating somewhere and we were listening to Agent Orange and there's the song about, you know, creating something, you're creating a scene, right? You're, Mm -hmm. you know, it's up, it's up to me and you. Um, No no one is coming. It's up to us. Nobody's going to give you that scene or a safe place to skate. Nobody's going to create a venue for you to have all ages punk shows where people can push each other and get sweaty. If you want something like that, at some point you gotta put your foot down and say, hey, there's no reason we can't do it. And nobody's gonna bring it here and give it to us. There's gotta be something we can do And kind of creating this. So yeah, the, the entire skating scene in Bellingham, anybody who had a ramp where you could get your friends together, that's where you knew you were strong, you knew you were safe, you could try things. Aggression Skates became the very first CD I ever listened to was there. So that switch from vinyl, To CDs, that all happened there. But the whole time, the whole driving force, music, the whole way, whether it was uh, the Dead Kennedys, you know, challenging the way that we look at power or money, whether it was the Misfits changing the way we look at iconic imagery and maybe not having a guitar at all in your mix and maybe just bass and vocals and drums, or whether it was, you know, that hardcore, that straight edge, that build something, you know. Feel good about something and build something together where other people are pushing people away and erecting these internal barriers, find a way to take them down and empower people and have something that we can all be a part of.
0: Okay. So I I love that. And everything you just said, that's at the core of who I am. Well, the interesting thing is, and I don't want to position this as a right or wrong, but the interesting thing is, we have this idea it's like if you want something to happen, you make it happen. If you see something wrong, you address it. And a lot of people in their punk experience, They're real about that and that matters to them. I'd say the vast majority of us. But then for a lot of people, we kind of go into normal life or maybe we stay in the scene, but we just kind of become okay with things and we just let things and it just kind of becomes a a form of music we enjoy. And there's nothing wrong with that. But for some people, we take that idea and then we start applying it other places. So we don't allow age to neutralize us or we don't just kind of be like, yeah, well, you know, I'm older now. We actually don't become neutralized. We take those lessons and we apply it somewhere. And I'm really interested in what was the transition point for you for, let's say, punk and skateboarding and hardcore and all that being your focus to, oh, actually, I'm going to make a difference in my community. I'm really interested in that. Was it something that was always in the back of your mind or was there something or a series of things that led you to that, to the path you're on?
1: Yeah, so, you know, I I graduated uh, from western washington university in i think august of 94 and you know a very progressive school focusing on political economy critique of american capitalism radical economics um i mean i was i was i I did not want to understand economics the way the average person does where at the end of the day a profit function drives all of your actions and there aren't uh room for variables like um, care and empathy and dialogue and inclusion. And the professor that I had at the time, Connie Faulkner, who I still stay in touch with, she encouraged me to look at a um, you know graduate program and there were a few that I looked at and I found one at Simon Fraser. They're, they had a really good p- political economy department, international political economy. It was part of their master's in uh, political science program at the time. And so I did a term there and as a qualifying student, because apparently they they weren't sure if my degree from Western would be good <laughs> enough for the Canadian standards. <laughs> but it gave me a chance to take some really great classes. International political economy, politics and development in the Horn of Africa, the Canadian legislative process. So I got for the first time outside of what I was very comfortable with. I drove every day. I commuted from the Lummi Indian Reservation to Mount Burnaby, right? Whether it was raining in Vancouver, you drive up above the clouds and it's like a Star Wars thing. You like drive up above the sea of clouds and there's this amazing campus and it was really good. But at the at the same time, I had a couple of professors that saw the journey I was on and they said, at what point are you gonna move home? Because being one of those academic types that gets graduate degrees and writes theory papers without really understanding how you can apply those energies to real change in people's lives. You don't want to look back after 30 years and then realize, my God, I've missed all of these important salient details. Mm-hmm. So I just did the one term. I did get accepted into the program. So my degree was up to par, uh, but I I declined. I moved home. I I had a Bronco two, Ford Bronco two, that I had to stop every 200 miles because it would have some electrical problem. that would overheat. Piled everything in there that I could, and uh, I drove home to the shadow of Saint Eugene's Mission School, which was um, the kind of uh, it was the Canadian Indian Residential School system building that was built by the federal government, um, that was funded by the federal government, uh, and uh, staffed by a couple of religious faculty. Um, That for the better part of, you know, almost half a century um, was the building where our culture was literally beaten out of us. People like my father's older siblings that did go there, his parents, his grandparents, they were two and three generations deep into this process of having their kids taken away for 11 months a year. And just having the culture, the language, the spirituality, and all of the social practices just bludgeoned out of them. And when I got there, there was a long debate over what should happen with that building. Some communities have since burnt down their residential schools because they stand like these monolithic demons, right? They cast these long shadows across the land. And there was an elderly woman from St. Mary's who had said, we need to do something with St. Eugene's because right now it's nothing more than a long, dark shadow on the land. It's a reminder of everything negative that happened. So now it's like a very well-known, world-famous resort. They have really fancy weddings. People come there and they reserve it years in advance to have their weddings there. Um, there are a number of academic and scientific conferences that happen there. Um, there are, and now it's kind of nice because a lot of the leadership training we do with our chiefs and councils, where we are giving them or strengthening their capacity for resilience by giving them these kind of direct instruction on leadership tools happens in what we call, it's actually the chapel, the room that we all sit in where we learn together is the chapel where that was literally driven out of them and when they were kids and their parents and their grandparents. So I moved home. I I lived really close to that building. I drove by it every day. It was one of those things that I knew it wasn't right. There had to be some change process. I wanted to be a change agent. Later on, I studied a lot of complexity and chaos and kind of structure versus agency. So I understood with a little bit of leverage, a little bit of knowledge and emotion, you can become a change agent to look at inertia and what's happening and find a way to change. Even a little bit now, 20 years later, that idea of a butterfly flaps its wings here and those very minor changes and air pressure cause these great changes later on down the road. So that just became important to me. It was part of the reason that I uh, went into the military. Um, And it was a big part of the reason that I went to graduate school because As an undergraduate, as someone with a four-year degree, for me to come home and keep saying, this is what we need to change, this is what we need to change, this is what we need to change, that's not the same thing as saying, okay, we all know something needs to change. Here's the way we're going to do it. We're gonna apply for this grant to develop resilience capacities in communities that have been through a collectively traumatic process. We're gonna start by assessing what's wrong or broken or different in our community by our own standards. We're no longer gonna allow other researchers to come in and tell us what's wrong with us. We're gonna do a really deep, very honest self-assessment of what could be better. And then we're going to crowdsource information from our elders, from our cultural people, from our technical people. We're gonna make sure that we have the best data that's drawn in, and then everyone together will make a decision about how we move forward. And I was just very lucky that at every kind of point in my educational career, there was a technician with the what started off as the Kdunacha Kinbasket um, Treaty Council and then later the Kdunacha Nation Council that saw, here's a community member doing some pretty interesting things with research. Let's find a way to support him through education by having a little bit of contract work, by getting him data that he needs, by empowering him to use that voice a little bit. So all of that like fire <laughs> and all of that like you know, that internal change the world, you know, make something better. That really, I think, was a nice match, a good fit with my community that was saying, okay, sure, maybe at this point we can't do everything you want to do, but work with this in 10 years from now, you'll see that there are some really great things happening. So that was when I moved home. Um, That was when I met a lot of resistance, but I also met some really great people that said, yeah, there's something about you. You're you're you may maybe a little bit better at building bridges than you are burning them. Uh and maybe <laughs> you've got some smarts and we want to support you in in getting those tools.
0: Okay, cool. So, you've had this incredible story to being in a position now where you are able to create real change with the work that you do every day through, you know, teaching and direct action. The business world and it's a kind of greater North American society, has seemed to been easing its way into the discussion of what previously, um, you know, I would have discussed as decolonization. And that's the term I've been hearing, decolonization. And of course, in the prep for this interview, one of the things you'd suggested is the idea that we'd switch to more thinking about post-colonization. And We're going to start talking about this in a business context because one of the things that I think is the most important is that I I really legitimately see a lot of business people actually really care about learning and making a difference. But the idea is so big and it's so seemingly so complex and seemingly so hazardous to take a misstep that a lot of people end up having kind of muted actions. And I just want to do our best right now to dismiss that fear and let's just yes. start having as best as we can like more and more open conversations. But I think we need to understand some of the basics. So let's talk about decolonization, post-colonization. Like what's the difference and, and what's really the path we should be looking at from your perspective?
1: Yeah, that's a really great question. Um, so in the course of academic research, uh, it was really clear to, there were a few really good themes that came out. So first off, the idea of dependency theory, that it used to be the idea the dependency is this relationship where you create some distribution of resources where one community is always in a position of having to sell or give resources to another. In my community, a lot of it was coal mining in the uh, in, in the Rockies and then also timber. So there was this relationship where resources were coming out of our community and they were being bought by, um, uh, by, by different businesses and they would set the price and we kind of just had to do what was happening. So it was this, de- this dependency of we're dependent on these external economic structures. And then later, when I really started getting into dependency theory and international political economy and kind of Ricardian neutrality, people would say, well, actually, wait a minute now. There's actually a two-way dependency there because those industries now are dependent on you as well. They're dependent on those resources. So one doesn't have that much power over the other. You could just decide to stop providing or you could um, do protests and you could block railways, which is something that our community did to raise awareness to the idea that there is this relationship where we need each other. So there was kind of the first place to move. Um The second was in looking at colonization, which is a broader spectrum of legal, social, political, and economic relationships where one group just kind of overwrites the code of another. If you want to be a part of what we're doing, this is the price we're willing to give you. And this is the relationship and you have to accept this contract. Mm. If you want to be members of society, you have to give us your kids so we can train them in reading, writing, arithmetic, and Christianity if you want to be a part of these legal processes if you want to serve in the military you have to become enfranchised and give up your indian status if you want to be recognized you have to submit to formal indian status for a lot of um, indian communities in canada uh, indigenous people have to apply for their status in a little office in ottawa it's not even up to your community to decide who you are it's up to another group so now one group has kind of overwritten all of the code right it's like you just hack into another system and then tell them this is what you have that's that's colonization that's a forced undoing of all of those processes for knowing who you are knowing your language um, building a stable community um, interacting with your environment in such a way that all of the animals that were there 500 years ago are still there today in other words not completely destroying ecosystems And then after you do that for a while, you start to realize that it's not a great equitable distribution and you're losing your children, you're losing your language, you're losing the things that are most important to you. And at some point you start to push back. So then we kind of hear about this idea of anti-colonization, or we start talking about decolonizing. And that was generally at the time in academic circles meant to talk about taking some of those really negative attractors from those colonial processes out. Mm -hmm. But from an academic and a scientific standpoint, you can't just suddenly say, we're gonna turn back time and we're gonna pretend that this part was never there. For instance, the Indian Act, which defines who we are politically, legally, um, which establishes um, kind of our our political structures and how we do our voting. You can't just say, we're gonna decolonize, do away with the Indian Act. A lot of activists really like that idea, volume, emotion and repetition, do away with the Indian Act, do away with Department of Indian and Northern Affairs, do away with indigenous services, let us run our own things. But the problem is some of those relationships are very old and communities for a hundred years have gotten used to some of those voting structures, the way that we understand who we are with respect to status, the way we understand education funding. So there are some things that you can't just do away with. You can't just excise them and cut them out with a scalpel like it's a surgery and we're going to decolonize, which is to remove them. What many indigenous academics talk about is indigenization or um, what, what I tend to refer to as kind of post-colonization or post-colonization resilience. Mm-hmm. Those, that history, those structures are still going to be there. Um, Indian status, Indian reserves, um, cr- you know our relationship with crown land, the way that we educate ourselves, our social systems. You can't just pretend that they're not there and start over from scratch. It would be temporary chaos, um, and we, it would probably be worse than anything else. But what we can do is find the closest traditional ideas from each of those areas. For instance, um, there are certain rites of passage that we have with young people. Those we had to take underground during the era of re- residential schools, because we needed to celebrate them in our own way. we would give them a name in our language. I introduced myself as "P," which is kind of the ugliest word in our language because it's got "e" right in there, but" right that was I learned about that name when I was an adult. It was my grandfather's name, my grandfather I never met. And it was this connection. It was this rite of passage. It made me a part of this larger thing. Mm -hmm. So instead of completely taking away names or pretending that that history wasn't there, it was you find what was there and what did work. The way a community accepted you was you had some way to contribute. Mm -hmm. Everyone had to contribute. So you find that part of this relationship and then you build on it. You come up with a new program that someone might say, Um, that's, you know, just a tool of control and, you know, that's not really decolonial. Um, that's not decolonizing. That's taking, you know, some part of this system that's foreign to us and using it. But the way I look at it is you find what works for a community and then you match it up with the closest Western tool. Let's take economic development for an example. Our community has long standing relationships with the land. There's areas that we know how to take care of very well so that we don't impact it in any you know, harmful sense and any um, over harvesting sense. And if we can find a way to match up with a Western business partner or some part of Canadian industry or Crown Corporation so, so that we can interact in a way that we both have some say, that we're co-managing, that we can validate both sets of values, not only the Crown Corporation's mission statement, but also, for instance, the Kronaja Nation vision statement that defines who we're going to be in this world. Now we've got that little Venn diagram where we're overlapping and we've identified some areas that can strengthen what's important to us while helping us interface what's out there. And the thing that's really tough and for all of you in the business world out there, I know what it's like. There are always indigenous activists that are used. They use volume, emotion, repetition, they get in your face, they scream. Those are the most volatile, but that doesn't mean they're the most right or correct. Some of the activists that I know are great people and they work towards sustainable goals and outcomes and others just sit waiting for an opportunity to take advantage of somebody who's trying to figure out a new way to talk about reconciliation, to talk about residential schools, to talk about those kinds of lengthy historical processes. So. The most disappointing thing for me is when I find an industry partner or a board of directors from a post-secondary institution or a business that really wants to do something good. So they dip their toes in the water and they contact a band or they look at a community and they say, how can we help do this? And then somebody who's carrying all this dysfunction, this anger that is motivated by these very negative attractors, just tears them down and destroys that relationship. Our community tucked away in the corner of BC, in the middle of nowhere, has a long history of identifying people and saying, that's great. We like what you're doing. Give us some time to think about it. And we'll find that overlap so we can get a place where we can work together. And 10 years from now, we can look back at all the good things we did. So don't give up. It can be stressful. And a lot of times your first conversations are the most awkward, Mm -hmm. but Those conversations over time with businesses that are willing to step a little bit outside of their comfort zone to say, you know what, that's not the way we do it, but there's probably some validity for you because your community did it for 10 millennia. So let's explore that a little bit. Those are the kinds of relationships, I think, in the 2000s that get us to a more sustainable type of, you know, um, post-colonization experience.
0: Um. Thank you so much. That was really, um, it was very enlightening for me to hear that. Uh, so very specifically, cause I want to, I want to start pushing further into this. Every year, every year I have companies talking to me about uh, diversity, inclusion, and also, and, and I do believe from like a really genuine place, like, hey, how do we show our support for um, the First Nations? And how do we actually make ourselves a, um, not just a workplace that would be inviting of all sorts of people, but how do we make ourselves good you know, partners within the land? And so I'm talking about companies that, let's say out of outside of traditional ideas like oil and gas or pipeline or lumber or agriculture. So companies that you might think of maybe traditionally interacting with uh, First Nations, but more so a business that, you know, say the, the corner store, whatever it is, how can businesses in a, a real way, a truthful way, in an actionable way, start thinking about taking part in um, uh, post-colonization? Um, like how can they just show up as a business? Like, yeah, that's a part of our approach is post-colonization. And it might not be up on our, uh, the storefront, like a sticker, but it's actually just part of our approach in general. What are some things businesses can be thinking about? This is a really good
1: question. It's been at the heart of uh, social sciences and um, Humanities Research Council grant that we were working on with other indigenous groups in the Selkirk College operating area, again, West Kootenays, East Kootenays, where we worked with three other cultural groups. And the question, the primary research question was, how can two-year institutions foster reconciliation? And our community was really firm from the beginning. Um, Reconciliation is kind of the formal apology for the residential school experience. And that's great. But for us, that formal apology part, that's kind of the Canadian side of it. Canada, at some point, to cope with its past and some of the things it's done, has to, in a very real way, say, Hey, you know what? We did wrong. We're going to move forward. This is our formal apology. For my community, for my family on the other side, We're less interested in the apology. What we want to see is conversational space opening. What I mean by this, and this is kind of at the heart of a lot of my research and lecturing, colonization can be thought of as removing indigenous voice from many conversations of importance. We were not allowed to decide how we would raise our children. We were not allowed to have a say in what language they would learn how they would celebrate their birthdays we did not get a say over how resources would unfold in our area we were quite often told this is what's going to happen we didn't get a say on roads or railways or airports coming into our communities we had our voices removed from virtually every conversation of weight so what we would like to see moving forward and i'm talking about myself and my community members working on this research When we talk about reconciliation, we just want to see conversational space open to our voice. When I work with an educational institution, we have a nice rubric. How open is your class to indigenous content? Not open on one end, all the way over to willing to take some direction. That's just a place where we can have a conversation, where we can look at The resources, most textbooks on indigenous people are terrible, (laughs) especially ones used by contemporary research or um, educational institutions. So if we have an opportunity to have that conversation with you, that's really important. If you look at businesses, one time one of the elders came to me and said, I think we're focusing on the wrong areas, right? Uh, You know, our Save On Foods and our Cal tire and a lot of the places where we do our daily business, We wanna see, we wanna be able to go places where people can just take a little bit of a deep breath before people get upset or or frustrated or hurt, and we have a new conversation because those are the places where we have, the average community member doesn't have a relationship with BC Hydro, doesn't have a relationship with the University of British Columbia, doesn't have a relationship um, with, with those kinds of entities, but they have these ongoing personal relationships with people they do business. Many of them went to high school together And this this awkward thing that they never had a conversation about. And it is tough because it's emotional, it's difficult. When I lecture and I talk to Canadians and at one point I will show them a bunch of pictures of our community members with their families. And then I will show those same kids as students at the residential school where they just look like ghosts. Those are kids that have been reprogrammed and have literally their spirit has been pushed out of them. And when I get to that point and I ask people how many people in here are parents and they raise their hands and I say, how would you feel if you just found out you're going to lose your child for 11 months and you had no say and you actually couldn't visit them during that time. That's when they, they, they feel it like it hits them in the chest and they realize, man, this happened for real. And it happened to this guy's family. And it happened to his family for three generations in some parts in Canada for much longer than three generations. Mm-hmm. So that gets really awkward. I never like to end it there because you can tell when you're lecturing and this, the, the air goes out of the room and people are like, this is deep. Mm-hmm. You've always got to find some way to build on it. So we talk to people about conversations. Have a new conversation with us. Talk about what interpretive signs in national parks might look like now. Mm-hmm. Instead of just having, um, as, as you know, you probably have been to Banff or Kootenay National Parks. Mm-hmm. There's so much potential. So many of our traditional sites are still in that area. And there are a couple of signs that you see that might say, where's the paint pots in particular was a place that my community used. We still use it. And I remember we proposed one time to Parks Canada. Why don't we work on some signs together that tell a little bit of a different story? that tell people about why it was important and why we still need to be able to go there. We went there with one of the park rangers who told us as we got out of the car, he said, remember, nobody is to take any paint today because that's contrary to the park's policy. And right on the other side of him, my uncle was just handing out Ziploc bags. Anybody that needs a bag to take some paint, take only what you need and use everything you take. And that led to a different discussion where they started to say, hey, you know what, it wasn't our job to fix you. It wasn't our job to preserve that. We haven't done a great job of it. I'm glad you said it. Let's have a conversation about it. A couple years later, that same group came to us and said, we wanna study fire ecology in the national parks and we want you to be involved. We want you to talk about how you used fire to routinely burn particular areas, which plants came back, which ones were important for you. This is millennia old information. And it just led to a new conversation. And it's tough. If you go to someone where you're not an expert and you propose a new conversation, you've kind of it's you make yourself a little bit vulnerable. And Okay,
0: and and I want I want to hit on that vulnerability like this is this is the the core of it for me, man, cuz like I I you know I go to a lot of conferences and uh, I get Asked to consult on a lot of diversity uh, issues, and interestingly, our company is not—we are not diversity. That's not what we do. And so, very often, I'm referring people to other spaces, or I encourage people to consider, like, this is how you might want to think about this. And I try to not play in that space because I'm—I'm ill-equipped. I'm—I'm I'm a therapist that does leadership development and communication skills, and that's what I focus on. Um, I'm in that space a lot, and one of the things that I see is. Huge fear, and especially when it comes to how do we do something that's meaningful about being in this. What I'm going to use the the language that we've been working on is this um, post colonization space of creating like a real proper business culture that is inclusive and and respectful of Indigenous and First Nations people. And really clearly, two things that come up is we don't want us to come across as performative. We don't want to do the things that everyone that every business does that just shows we're checking a box. But it also doesn't mean that those things are bad to do. Like and and there's that kind of like, I don't I don't know what's performative or not or or what to do. And then the other side is I don't want to be condescending. I don't want to come across like I'm talking to a you know a bunch of um you know I'm I'm this powerful person that's now taking some of my time to give it to the others. And there's like such fear about it that it leads to paralysis. And then I'd say like the ghost conversation is here is there's like a lot of leaders from my perspective who absolutely super deeply care about this. And then companies are like, yeah, it matters to us until money becomes involved. And then how much money does it cost to actually make these changes? So there's leaders that really care and they're worried about being performative and they're worried about being condescending. But then also it's like, whether or not companies are actually going to put money into creating real change, things that might impact their bottom line, the shareholder status, all of that. Now, I I know I'm asking you kind of a big thing, but just any of your thoughts on that, that that deep discomfort, because when you talked about the imagine your children being taken away for 11 months a year and people go, oh, how do we take them from that moment into real action rather than just feeling terrible? How do they get them to be like, okay, I'm going to use that feeling Now that I understand the reality and create real action here that I do boldly and and fearlessly. And if I screw up, I'm not afraid to hear that I screw up. So what are your thoughts on that?
1: I mean, the most important thing I think there is safe conversational space for everyone. Because even though my community has been finding a way to reincorporate their voice again and be viewed as valid, people that have to make themselves vulnerable to opening up, to asking those questions, to, I mean, it starts with from the position of we're not doing a great job. How do we do better? You also need a safe space for people to explore that. If you look back at leadership theory, all of the legacy schools like trait theory, um, great man theory, those are always, there was one person who could make someone else do something and they had these traits that were endowed and then that became the culture and so many of our corporate structures that exist today are just new iterations of that. When we got into the 19 uh, mid-70s to the 90s, there were a number of different leadership schools that came out of these emerging schools like Transformational Leadership. If you're trying to lead and you're not trying to transform your followership into a more empowered group, you're not actually leading. You're still just a great man, right? And it was always like a white, Christian, older, wealthy, educated man. It was never anyone else. So to move into those areas, I think um, connective leadership. I mean, connective leadership is a way of showing people in leadership and people in followership that there are these connections and there are these great places where we can have these new ways of connecting people, where once that relational bond is between two people, now you're not just one isolated person, right? Now you're two people that each have a network, you each have this whole connection of resources, and if you empower people to connect with others... Now you have a relationship where all of those resources that come from both parts of that network can lead to something new. And that's a scary thing. If you have to interact with activists that are going to get up in front of you and yell at you. (laughs) If you are working with a researcher that gets upset because they feel triggered and they start talking in jargon or they talk over your head. Those are all just ways of limiting the potential conversational space for everyone to be a part for everyone to feel comfortable saying, this is what doesn't work with our community. Um, For instance, I do some work with CBSA, the Canada Border Services Agency, and one of the biggest issues when I go to do our cultural training is very commonly when you cross the border and you have kids with you, what's the first question they ask? Are these your children? Mm -hmm. That is an incredibly difficult question to ask in our community because our children were physically removed from our care sometimes for their entire youth. And so um, after the residential schools was the kind of 60s scoop and foster care, forced foster care, where people tried to reconnect coming back, and if it is your child that's grown up out of community for 10 years, and someone in a uniform and a position of power asks you, is this your child? That's incredibly triggering. And we all know what happens if you watch an episode of COPS or Mounties or any of those, If someone in a position of authority is doing an investigation and they ask you a question and you repeat the question, their assumption is you are buying yourself time to come up with an answer. In our community, we're buying ourselves time to just take a breath. Is this my daughter? Yes, this is my daughter. This is a hard thing for me to talk about because my father and his sisters were removed from their parents. So somewhere in the back of my head, I hear the Indian agent at the time, or the superintendent of the school, asking, is this your daughter? And then my grandparents lost their daughter for the rest of the year, probably for seven, eight, 12, 15 years in a row. So when we went to talk to CBSA, we were really clear. Rethink it a little bit. There's a power shift there. And when we started talking about the dynamics of family, everyone that was in the room, in uniform, there's a part of their professional training, When I asked them, how many people here are parents, they all raised their hands. And when I said the same thing, now imagine I show up at your house and I'm taking your child. It hit them as much as that uniform is there to protect them. And we had a great conversation moving forward. We talked about maybe instead of asking that question, here's something that you could do. Or the biggest one is they would say, sometimes we ask that question and older people in the car will yell at us. That's because those are the people that physically lost their children during the residential school process. Mm -hmm. So you give this new potential way to see what those group dynamics are, how things change, how they're awkward. The flip side is we always tell them, you build people up, you don't break people down and then leave it. That's not leadership and that's not training. The way that we leave it is we say, First off, we have a huge problem in our community with missing and murdered Indigenous women. As many as 10,000 women of Indigenous descent in in Canada um are their their disappearance, uh, their murder, their violation, whatever happened to them often goes unknown. We don't ever really know what happened and they're not investigated the way that, that the average Canadian woman um you know violations might be But what we do tell them, because we are raising so much awareness about missing and murdered indigenous women in our community, we make sure we tell our community members, stop assuming that the RCMP and CBSA are there to hurt you or take something from you. They're the first line of defense. If you can't find your daughter, if you can't find your aunt, if you can't find your grandmother or your mother, those are resources that we have now. So at the same time we've created this conversational space with the border services agency and we've said, Here's a way where your actions as a matter of your operational protocol can make things awkward. We've also tried to build them up and say, at the same time, our community members know you're one of the first lines of defense of our children maybe being taken across the border, and we're going to have a different relationship with you. Conversational space, reconciliation, new relationship, et
0: cetera. Okay. Um, so as we're heading towards the end of our conversation, I've got some, some questions I want to ask you that are, um, I think it's really important for people to understand some actionable steps. So in the leadership space and, uh, you know, I'm, I'm sure you've seen this in your own experience. It's just like anything else. It's just like, even like in the music scene, you know, trends come and go, right? So it's like one year you're doing everyone, every band is sounding like youth of today. You know, a few years later, every band's trying to sound like earth crisis, you know, whatever it is, right? Very jenty. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> So in the leadership space, I always kind of, I try not to roll my eyes, but I end up rolling my eyes. It's the it's the punk in me where it's like, you know, let's say six years ago, people were like authentic leadership. You know, it's so important to be authentic. And then a few years later, it's like this kind of leadership, that kind of, and, you know, kind of in the past couple of years, it's been storyteller and everyone on LinkedIn is like putting in their in their job title storyteller. And I see a lot of spends like where people spend their leadership money on this kind of stuff. And I respect it. Human beings move in, move in trends and move in, in those things. But at the end of the day, it's always leadership dollars. Companies say, this is how much we're spending on leadership training, da da da. And you're going to have a corporation set that. And then teams are going to have their own little budget. And then you've always got people in the teams who are trying to fight the good fight for training that they deeply believe in. And when it comes to the our subject matter today, this is one that people talk to me a lot about is how do I get my company, my organization, my boss to say, yeah, we're actually going to sink some money into this. Not just because it's the right thing to do, because it actually makes business sense to us. And That's the one where they're always like, how do I sell this to my boss from like, it makes business sense. It doesn't look good. It isn't like, quote unquote, the right thing to do. It actually makes business sense that we properly train ourselves and how to not just be inclusive, but being inviting and actually operate in a um, a more of a post-colonial way. So how do we convince businesses that this is actually good business to be focusing on this training and, and to grow in these ways?
1: I think, uh, I mean, change is difficult. Um, There's any number of change theories. um, There are all kinds of strategies about how to reduce fear, about vulnerability of change. Mm -hmm. Um, If you're still stuck in that old school great man trait theory, the old school plug and chug where you're going to make people do things, you can't change without saying, hey, there's something that I'm not doing perfect, so there needs to be something we can do better. When you look at those other leadership schools down the road, You can find places where you can transform a group into someone more capable, or you can find a way to make new connections. Authentic leadership, I love that you touched on it. I was just reviewing the latest edition of Peter Northouse's book on leadership because I'm going to use it in a class. One of the knocks on his book was um, there's nothing really new. There's no emerging leadership. There's no servant leadership. There's no authentic leadership, and there's no ethical leadership. That's the other new one. What I tell people, if you're going to talk to your institution about change with respect to relationships with indigenous people in general or something specific like reconciliation, pick an artifact that your community is familiar with. Every business has a vision statement, has a mission statement. Every corporation has a charter where it says this is who we are and this is what we do. Find some part of that that could be better with respect to reconciliation. Find some part of that that can be better with respect to new relationships moving forward. People are more open to talk about environmentally sustainable these days than um, issues of equity. So maybe you find a part of that and say, Hey, we're already looking at this part of our mission statement, where we have found that there's some flexibility to improve things with respect to the environment. Now, maybe we look at people that are from historically underserved communities. Maybe we find some way to improve um, scholarship opportunities. Maybe we find don't go in to sit down in front of the board or your CEO and propose an idea and be unsure and not really, I don't, I mean, I think it would be better if we had a new, never do that. Always be like, hey, I know at the retreat last year, here were the bullet points that came out for things we want to do to improve our profitability. And somewhere there's always going to be that schematic, better relationships, better media, better advertising. And there are things you can do with each and every one of those that make new connections. And those new connections are new markets. Those are new customers. Those are new places. Those are new parts of what the average Canadian or Canadian institution or organization sees as as an apology. But the people on the other side of that reconciliation, that balance, see it as empowering. Mm -hmm. You come to my community and there's a new way you want to do business. And as a part of that, you're going to improve some particular thing that we need. That's a certain check mark on your box. It gives you an actionable business item, but we automatically see it as a place where somebody felt like empowering us as a part of this new conversation. Yeah. scholarships, those are a really big thing. Um, internships, and not just fluff where you're going to hire someone from an un, you know underrepresented community to come and hang out with someone for two weeks and then say goodbye and never see again. Find a way to get to know them. Have a good HR interview. What do you want to do? And we'll have a meaningful relationship with you to move with. Maybe it's a certain manager that we have, or maybe it's an area that you're used to Those are very actionable ways to improve that future relationship, to create that conversational space where someone from my community might be more empowered to be a part and someone from your organization is able to say, here's a part where I felt I made this meaningful change moving forward. And it worked for both groups and it didn't. Disrespect these older processes in this community, and now we have these two parts of these network that overlap. We've made this connection. There's a relationship there, and there's something that we can look at over time. If it works, find new ways to do it. If it doesn't work, find out why it didn't work. Find a better way to go about it.
0: Okay, I, I love that, man. That's so so actionable. I especially love um, what you talked about in terms of internships. Rather than have someone in for two weeks and kind of like like bring them around the office, like some kind of marketing material, like, look how inclusive we are instead say like, you know, how can we invest in this person as they invest in us and, and, and help us actually grow and change. Now, when it comes to change, uh, it hasn't been a one-way street for you. And, and a big part of your story that we've, um, I've wanted to save towards the end of our conversation is, um, you weren't always Christopher horse thief, right? Yeah. So what can you share with us about that?
1: Sure. So, you know, my, my father, uh, his parents legal names were, uh, Louis, Paul, Sam, uh, and of course, Sam, um, and Paul and probably Louis, if you look far enough into it, uh, were names that in some way were connected to Christianity or the Bible or, or Canon. Um, and my, uh, his mother was Gertrude Gonzaga, Gonzaga, um, of course, um, being, um, another one of those religious names. At some point uh, at St. Eugene's, there was a man by the name of Father Kokola, and he. one of his jobs was to bring everyone from our four outlying communities together to St. Eugene's, where he essentially gave them all new names. There was just a list of names that had nothing to do with where you came from or who you were. They were meant to do two things. One, make the native people and um, new Westerners, our our new neighbors, make them more similar by giving them names that were very similar. But there was also a part that was meant to undo or kind of forget, make less salient, these family histories um, by just changing the names. And the really crazy thing was, for a long period, your father's first name became your last name. And then your first name became your children's last name. So there were no two generations that had these kinds of family legacies because every generation had a new last name. And I asked one of our elders one time, um, Liz Gravel, I asked her, why do you think that was? And she just laughed and said, "It's so we couldn't remember who we were. So Louis-Paul Sam has a son, Pierre Francis Sam, who ended up uh, in foster care uh in skagit valley washington his family were a part of the post-world war ii agricultural communities um at one point i i got to do um an agricultural economics assistantship in skagit valley where i interviewed farmers and the agricultural producers there don't have a great relationship with native people it had to do with kind of the fish ins and fish beds and um you know, um, fertilizer. But when I would talk to them about indigenous people, at first they'd look at me and they, you know, I would tell them where I was from. And they would say, well, we don't have a great relationship. But one thing that we did know during the 1950s, when we needed workers, we just sent a bus to the interior of BC and entire families came down and they still live this semi nomadic lifestyle where they would start with strawberries and then they would move to raspberries and then they would move to blueberries and then pumpkins and then squash and then hops. And they would do this thing where they, they moved around. So at some point my grandparents lost their children to foster care. So my father and his two sisters stopped being Sam's and they became Sanchezes, right? So, There was a man on the Lummi Indian Reservation whose relative, one of his relatives was, I believe, um, a Portuguese merchant marine. Mm -hmm. And so it actually was a Portuguese name. And so there was a a Sanchez family on the Lummi Reservation. And that man, Charles Sanchez, adopted my father. So my father went from being um, whatever would have been a traditional name to being a Sam, to being a Sanchez. And in the course of his life, that all happened to him within 12 years, 10 or 12 years. So we grew up kind of a little bit uncritically always being the Sanchez family. And at some point when I really had decided that, you know, who I was and and my life and my identity and all of those identity resources that were important to me from music to being in bands to skating to being a punk rocker to being straight edge to all of that started to also be about um, going to dances and having regalia i 'm wearing some, some you know a beaded medallion right now when I started to do more of those very traditional things, making a regalia, having a war bonnet as a military veteran, and those things, I had people that started to say, What about some of our traditional names and I got that in my head, and I thought, you know it's great there is there's a Sanchez name and a Sanchez family, and there's something to that, but there are these older histories that just kind of got covered up and so the more i interviewed people from my community they told me these really amazing stories i said they said we, we don't really know what name you would go back to but let's look at your history because our names would have always told us who we were so they went back to and there's a nice southern alberta connection here so at one point uh there was uh, a man from our community from my family whose name was white cloud He was a very, very well known, renowned horse thief, a stealer of horses, because at one point, indigenous economies, the unit of analysis was the horse. If you had five horses, you were a little bit wealthy. If you had 10, you were kind of twice that wealthy. Horses became um, one of those tools that we measured ourselves by. And more importantly, if you could outsmart someone by going and taking their horse without getting caught, without getting killed, without having to hurt anyone, that was a really big thing. So for me, horse stealing was about this outthinking, outsmarting, you know, being a little bit tricky. And that was really good. And then the downside of it was that the, I said, I remember asking, well, what happened to White Cloud? And they said, oh, he was so good at what he did that when they finally caught and killed him in southern Alberta, they outlined his body as in stone. And it's to, apparently still to this day, it's an archaeological site. <laughs> so wow. I remember they told me how to say white cloud in our language and it was like 15 syllables long with a lot of letters that wouldn't have went over very well Uh, but that same uncle said you know horse thief would work he knew that at the time i had a powwow singing group we had a big drum that was for our family and he said you should be the horse thief singers he taught me how to spell it we painted that and then actually the drums in the next room we we painted that on there and before the ink was even dry (laughs) A couple of our elder women came by and they said, horse thief singers. Oh, I really like that. But who taught you how to spell it? And I told them and they said, oh, we could tell because he spelled it wrong. (laughs) So (laughs) they went through the process. They taught me how to spell it. And when I decided that I wanted to have a legal change of name, I was living on the Flathead Indian Reservation uh, in uh, Montana. So I went to the 4th District Court. I hired an attorney. um, And he said, you know, all you have to do, you have to take an ad out in the paper. So if you have any debtors that are you know, looking for you, you have to say that you're going to change your name. And then you have to go and appear before the judge and explain why. And so I wrote that story up and I remember I went in there and it's usually a really quick thing, like it's, you know, but I remember at the time the judge said, this is a little bit different. We want to give you the opportunity to explain why you're doing this, because this is a really, this is like a really important resilience thing. This is not, you're not motivated by anger or frustration you're trying to do something really positive. And the the local paper did a little write-up on it. But from that day forward, which was um, 2000, I think the end of 2000, the very beginning of 2001, almost 20 years ago, from that day forward, I I became really did become a different person. When I finally got on Facebook, like not, for a long time, Dave and I didn't even really see each other or talk to each other. And then we never really because I, I was not Chris Sanchez, right? I showed up yeah. as someone completely different. And then I remember one day, the day that people started to figure out, Oh, Chris Sanchez is Christopher Horse Thief. <laughs> like my number of friend requests from, you know, old school people from the back in the day, like quadrupled. So yeah, yeah, that was yeah. really good. It was just a way for me to be able to say for every one of those times that my community was told, you don't get to speak your language. You don't get to live the way that you've lived since the beginning of time. You don't get to pray the way that your family has prayed since the beginning of time. This was my way to be able to say, this is who I am. And even if this isn't exactly who I was since the beginning of time, I'm reaching further back into that part of my history because I think it's just as valid. Maybe that name doesn't appear in the Bible but i think it will appear in some of our historical records moving forward it also gives me something to try and live up to be proud of um to you know ha- have a little bit of a new a new legacy there but yeah mm-hmm. chris sanchez equals christopher horse thief and vice versa
0: well and if i'm going to tie it back uh to the beginning of our conversation um and certainly not that it it has to always come back to this but it got me thinking about that 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 punk willingness just to put your foot down and say nope it's not going to be like that. It's going to be like this because I'm going to make it like that. Yeah. And one of the things I'd encourage uh, anyone in the business world to listen to listen. that I know this seems just huge and scary. And we're thinking about like this massive thing that's been done, uh, not just in North America, all over there, all over the world to indigenous people. Feeling bad is essentially, you know, thoughts and prayers. Anybody can feel bad. It's a certain kind of person that acts. So you don't need to grow up in the punk scene. You don't need to, you know, have a great record collection to make a difference. And all it takes is a willingness to ask questions and then to do something with that knowledge. And I want to thank Christopher Horsethief for being someone who has been not only an incredible example of that in his life, but also someone that helps other people do that. So as we're wrapping up, I got a couple blitz questions for you. Ready? Okay. SSD or minor threat?
1: Uh, minor threat. <laughs> Ooh, I just like the confidence just, in that. Just by the number of records, right? Okay. I have one okay. SSD and probably a dozen minor thread in there.
0: Uniform choice or instead?
1: Oh, instead. I recently picked up first press at a local record shop. I, well, I already had one, but I walked in and the guy said, we just took this in on trade. And I was, he said, it's been out for like two days. And I said, got to have it. So yeah, I got All two right. first press. Yeah.
0: Adolescence or suicidal tendencies?
1: All suicidal <laughs> they, they were they were brown people i when i i started listening to suicidal in los angeles and then they became uh that that was that was they were the first besides bad brains they were the first people of color that i saw in any hardcore or punk or later even in metal and then also the less talked about funk metal scene mm-hmm. so for me that was always really important welcome to venice beowulf ex- all of those I, I got all those records over there
0: all right last one tough okay. one Maybe not tough for you. We'll see, brotherhood or undertow.
1: Ah, uh, I I have to say brotherhood. Um, just mostly because I think I only played in one show with undertow, and then I kind of moved out of the scene when undertow, um, kind of came. I just remember a couple of shows meeting them a little bit. But, you know, especially when I started going to Seattle, I spent a lot of time with Ron. I bumped into Ron on the Blackfeet Indian Reservation during um, the powwow there one year, and we got to hang out. We we both we both used to have shaved heads, and then I'm at this store, and we've both got long hair, and it's braided. And my brother says, hey, there's some guy staring at you. I think we're about to get in a fight. <laughs> and I look up, and it, was, and it Ron. was Ron, and we both had, like, long hair. And we <laughs> hadn't seen each other for, like, seven or eight years <laughs> Um, And even then, Ron lived right up until kind of the very end in Otis Orchards, which is not even five minutes from where I live. So we yeah. still kind of kept in touch, um, still ch- kind of traded shirts and records. The first time I went to Seattle to someone's house with my record collection and had a big record trading thing was with Ron. So for me, it was a Brotherhood thing. It was the first real show I played was a Brotherhood thing. So, yeah, I just I got to leave that there
0: right on okay well and rest in peace ron uh we love and miss you for all sure. right uh christopher this was incredible man thank you so much for your time uh this is one of what i believe should be many conversations if you will be uh, if you'd be into coming back and um everybody this is the time you know there. you know tomorrow is is not the time to act today is so let's learn let's listen let's open our hearts and minds and dave drop the beat <laughs> Wow, that was an incredible conversation. And again, thank you so much for Christopher Horsethief for coming and taking us through what can be quite a challenging discussion. You know, as we were talking about this, I was thinking so much about how much I don't know about making a difference in this area. And it's scary. I want to help. I want to do the right things. But there's a difference between wanting to do the right things versus trying to avoid doing the wrong things. And if I'm reflecting on myself, so much fear about doing the wrong things and making missteps and offending people is keeping me from engaging in this as much as I could. So a real commitment on my end is focusing on, hey, I know I'm going to make some missteps. I know that maybe I'll do something here and it won't be quite the right thing and I'll learn from it. So moving away from avoiding making mistakes and instead focusing on making a difference. A great way you do that is by partnering with someone like Christopher, learning, asking questions, and showing courage to engage in a topic that I believe is just fundamentally important to how we move forward as a society. So I hope you got as much out of this episode as I did, and we will see you next time on One Step Beyond. One Step!